0: The thing that is unique about these protests is not that there are protests in China, but it's the politicization and it's the specific targeting of policies from the central government.
1: You know, if we're going to be boldly speaking against atrocity of any form, then shouldn't the Uyghur issue and Uyghurs deserve just as the same kind of solidarity and compassion from the people who claims to be the champion of human rights?
2: This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of our live event series. Haymarket Books is a radical, independent publisher dedicated to connecting social movements with the ideas they need in the struggle for a better world. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. By joining the Book Club, you get all new Haymarket titles delivered to your door and a 50% discount on the entire Haymarket website, all for one low price. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. If you really wanna help us out, rate and review the podcast on Apple or whatever platform you're listening on.
3: Good evening, everyone, and welcome to this Spectre Live event. Uh, I'm David McNally. I'm one of the editors of Spectre Journal, and it really is my privilege to welcome you to what I think is going to be both a fascinating and really deeply informative discussion tonight on the uprising in China, roots, nature, and trajectory of the resistance. As many of you will know, Spectre Journal is dedicated to a left internationalism, a politics of insurgent socialism from below, and a commitment to grappling with the complexity of the real issues and challenges that confront the left movement internationally today. As always, we're delighted to be partnering with our hosts, Haymarket Books, for this event. I don't think I need to tell any of you either that they are a preeminent radical publisher in the English language today. Now, the events that we've seen in recent weeks in China represent a truly momentous wave of social protest, but they have also been greeted with a significant degree of confusion uh, and indeed sometimes even hostility by sections of the left and so specter partnering with haymarket has felt that it's, it's extraordinarily important to begin to actually analyze the nature of the social protest movements their direction dynamics and the challenges that they face today and we've got four truly important and insightful commentators. I'm going to introduce them briefly now. After that, I will simply be calling on them at different points in the discussion. Eli Friedman teaches in the Department of International and Comparative Labour at Cornell University. He is the author of The Urbanization of People, The Politics of Development, Labour Markets and Schooling in the Chinese City. He is also the co-editor of The China Question, Toward Left Perspectives, published earlier this year by Verso Books. Ryan Asat is an Uyghur human rights advocate and Tom and Andy Bernstein Fellow at Yale Law School. Since 2020, she has led a public campaign for the release of her brother, Ekpar Asat, who has been held in the Xinjiang internment camp system since 2016, and on behalf of the Uyghurs and other ethnic minorities in China. Stephanie Wang is assistant professor in the Gender and Sexuality Studies department at Sarah Lawrence University. She is the author of Unfinished Revolution, an overview of three decades of LGBT activism in China, and Made in China Journal. Tobita Chow is the director of Justice is Global. He was a key leader in bringing Moral Mondays to Illinois, served as chair of the board of directors of the People's Lobby, and has led trainings on the global economy and globalization on three continents. He holds a master's degree in philosophy from the University of Chicago, and a master's degree in divinity from the lutheran school of theology in chicago let me extend a warm greeting and and really profound thanks to all four of you i'm looking forward to learning an enormous amount from our conversation so let's really start with some of the most rudimentary issues that are raised at the moment we've been witnessing this really exceptional wave of protest throughout China. What do you see as the root causes of the uprising? And who do you identify as the principal social groups that have come out in protest? Stephanie, could we start with you?
4: Sure. Thank you, David, for the question. Um, So I think, I would say the root cause for this particular uprising during this COVID lockdown is a sense of collective fear and trauma and grief. So we've definitely witnessed um, like ongoing protests, either you know workers' protests or LGBT protests or feminist advocacy. You know since the 1990s, but none of these events are collected in the sense that they inspire. The kind of collective fear of Chinese people, right? Because you know, either the workers' rights, disability communities, ethnic minorities—they are considered the minority in China, and they're not necessarily minority in population, but in in terms of power, right? Because power is structured in Chinese society in a very top-down manner. So these marginalized people are, you know, really much differentiated by you know, their access to resources and, and power. So, and secondly, I think um, the particular naming of the grievances of the previous, you know, mass protests, um, it does not resonate with many many people. And uh, for example, with the feminist and LGBT activists most familiar with, even through, you know, decades of localization, you know, telling our own stories, it's still very hard to garner, you know, public support. And on the other hand, we have the Chinese state actively using the, the kind of nationalist narratives to stigmatize movements, saying that they are instigated by you know imperialist you know foreign forces. So, and not to mention that these movements itself they intend to challenge the system in place. For example, market exploitation, patriarchy, heteronormativity, ableism, etc. So we are seeing that three years of COVID lockdown really exposed. This very flawed system to ordinary Chinese people, and especially to lower to middle class citizens, you know, these groups, they have held on to a very merit- meritocratic and individualistic mindsets on social justice issues. So, with the help of social media, we are able to see a lot of the first hand accounts of these kind of grievances during COVID, and so. You know, many of them got deleted fairly quickly. So I would say when fear and grievance became the primary affects, the kind of emotions that people experience, and it is really unsettling to, you know, to a lot of ordinary people. You know, this other side of the grievance and fear is a complete distrust of the system itself. So the kind of, I have nothing to lose mindset, right? Which kind of, um, emboldened a lot of people to go on the streets. And even for those who had no previous political education, I would say, you know, uh, after 2012, the university system kind of got really quiet about civil society education. So this younger generation actually didn't really have a lot of you know, political education, right? How to organize, how to mobilize. So for these people who had no prior kind of exposure to this kind of political, you know, activism or the kind of interest in civil society organizing, the kind of collective fear and trauma really turn into collective action. So I was, you know, a sense of very kind of the collective fear and trauma and grievance. Um, Thank you. Oh, there's another question about who came out in the protest, right? Yes. Um, So I think The past three years really exposed a central question of the crisis of social reproduction. So, we've seen uh, a lot of women, you know, um, like describing their experiences in COVID, they have to take care of all the family, they have to, you know, feed them, they have to wash clothes. So, there's a lot of incidences, and actually, globally, there's a rising level of domestic abuse. Domestic violence and the rates of divorce rates are going up very high in the past three years. So we witnessed a lot of women and queer people actually came out in the protest, and actually some of them actually led the actions of this kind of civil disobedience. So um, so that has to do with you know middle class women, right? They they have you know um, they have to take on the the shoulder of the domestic shore without, you know, because they couldn't hire someone, especially, you know, um, of lower class or from the rural region to do the work for themselves. So they feel they have to, fit, they, they kind of face the reality of gender equality, like right, kind of within the households, once they couldn't really hire someone to do those work. And and women are usually, you know, the first who came out to the protest, either, you know, or against this kind of unreasonable lockdown or going to the streets. Um, and I would say queer people are also very much affected by the lockdown. And since the COVID broke out, uh, I've seen a lot of, you know, forced to come out stories when, you know, queer people, when they are stuck in their natal families, they have to face, um, interrogated and confronted by the question of their sexuality and marriage pressure. So. So I would say women and queer people, you will see a lot of them are actively taking, you know, charge of, you know, um, what, what kind of slogan, what kind of, you know, what kind of um, like, uh, like uh, the, the, the chanting and everything and the resources for, you know, when people get arrested because feminists and queer activists, they have been really um, resourceful. In dealing with the Chinese authorities, so they also, you know, learned a lot from the Hong Kong protests because we always have this kind of transnational connection conne- uh, connection with um, Hong Kong and Taiwan. So I would say, with ordinary people, you know, awakening to this kind of gruesome reality, and with the kind of uh, resourceful tactics that's al- already utilized by feminist and LGBT activists, um, it kind of, you know, came out together and and, and worked really well. Yeah.
3: Well, that's hugely helpful, Justin, getting a sense of some of the, those social uh, actors. Uh, who else would like to now come in and, and add some uh, additional perspective and comments on on this?
1: Uh, okay. Uh, well, I'm happy Great. to. Begin. Um I think, uh, as Stephanie said, uh, I do believe that there there has been what's been bubbling up over the past few years is that people's freedom and liberty have been taken away by the Chinese government during its uh, COVID control. Um, but if if we were to um, really interrogate the matter, what happened is a tragedy tragedy that took place in the capital city of Urumqi that cost at least uh, 10 Uyghurs. Um, it's, so I actually participated in one of those uh, vigils that took place here in England. And I remember giving us, it was a very spontaneous speech, and I talked about uh, this beautiful solidarity between Uyghurs and Han, and I said, thank you for showing up for the Uyghurs. And the speaker following me said, it doesn't matter who are the victims, we don't know the ethnicity of the victims. There's almost this kind of reductionist, uh, reductionism that took place in my view, how I felt. Um, and I said, no, the ethnicity do matter. Um, who are the victims do matter? You know, I think we, we have this long tradition of saying the victims' names. Like, all this truly matters. And it matters from three state perspective. One, it's from the perspective of the perpetrator who has successfully isolated an ethnic group, in this case, the Uyghur people uh, in the Xinjiang region, who has been... Um, subdued in these concentration camps for years and the majority have not had any understanding even if they did have understanding as to the scale of their atrocities, but they remain as bystanders or in some ways maybe implicitly in the Chinese government's atrocity by looking away. Second, it matters to the victims um, and I say that to victims of not only the victims who who we lost during this tragedy, but also the Uyghur people themselves, because over the past several years of ongoing atrocities, there has the Uyghur people felt like we're very much in Our pain is invisible. We lost so much hope as to potentially seeing a sea change as to government's response. Um, or because of the collective effort of the international community, maybe the Chinese government would be deterred and release people. So at the moment when Uyghur community is not only suffering but couldn't find that hope after year upon year of atrocity, I think it matters what triggered, what ignited this uprising, even if it's for a brief moment, whether it continues, remains to be seen. I think it's so critical to send a message to the perpetrator that whatever it happens, whatever, what, no matter what happens or how, no matter how controlling the Chinese government can be, people can still rise above and speak truth to power. And I think for the third, cert- it matters for the international audience. Like I was talking to some of the professors and they didn't know that it was the victims were the Uyghurs that prompted this incredibly powerful moment of not only just the solidarity but courage of Chinese people. Because we haven't seen anything like that since 1989. And on top of that, it brings the issues of the Uyghurs into the spotlight again. The truth of the matter is like so many atrocities are happening. We've seen uh, the uh, state-sanctioned executions in Iran, like Iranian people's uprising. We've seen so many different moments in, from Tigray to uh, you name it. And oftentimes these atrocities became a headline for a day and then... The news media moves on to something else. So for advocacy point of view, having your issue, the issues that are working on, people suffering still remain uh, as a headline, does matter. Um, and I've never thought that Urumqi, this city, the capital city of the Uyghur region, will become a symbol of civil disobedience in this collective struggle of people of China together. And I think that itself matters. And if I could quote from one of the Uyghurs, uh, Uyghur, just wonderful, wonderful guys um, who spoke so eloquently what Urum- Urumqi symbolizes for the Uyghurs. And why it matters is that he said um, Urumqi, and I think I, I can speak for, in this context, uh, speak for, for the Uyghurs that Urumqi is like New York City for the Uyghurs. You know, because Xinjiang itself has sixteen different cities, but Ürümqi is such a vibrant city. It it absorbs, it welcomes everybody from um, different parts of the Uyghur region. Everybody can find a chance to survive professionally, personally, and in any other way. And that's why, you know, it's it's been seen as this a place that um, really welcomes and just embraces everybody, regardless of your difference of views, which city, your socio-class or race um, or any other matter. So, and this city that means so much to the Uyghur community now has a profound meaning. And precisely because of this reason, um, when in Shanghai, people suddenly, so spontaneously, found that Urumqi Road in Shanghai because some of the streets are named after particular cities and Urumqi, there was a street that named after Urumqi. The Chinese government was so insecure to even remove that road, just like it has removed and stripped the Uyghur identity, it's the same way. So I think that's why I think it, you know, if we were to go back to how it happened, I think the lives that we lost, that really resonated with the Chinese people, at Han people at this time. And I, I do want to highlight one thing. Over the past se- several months, the Uyghur region has seen one of the worst crackdown in terms of COVID lockdown itself. And you know, Shanghai gets a lot of attention, but Urumqi doesn't you know because this is a region is almost became synonymous with concentration camps. so who cares about a less degree of another crackdown so that those are reality that we community has to navigate so um so that's why like i am really emphasizing like why it happened and uh, i think over the past few years, like Chinese people, would, Han people would look at the Uyghur atrocities and say, so, well, you know, that doesn't concern us. A lot of them became a benefactors of that system and that oppression. Like, this is a similar perpetuation of oppression that we've seen in many other cities. If you look at the civil rights movement and so forth. And this is why Hu came out, unfortunately and very sadly for me, speaking as a Uyghur, Uyghur people didn't come out because they're too afraid and I'm glad they didn't because if they did, the first label they would get as separatists, extremists and terrorists and they would be the first one who would be sentenced and in fact, we have seen state media that if somebody even likes what happened or any news about this issue in particular, the tragedy in Urumqi, then they would be sentenced. So, um, but I would say, it's an uprising that people from all walks of life really joined together this time. It was very spontaneous. It was um, this sort of completely unplanned in some ways, it's very inspiring uh, moment of solidarity between people. Um, So I'll say this much for now and, and continue the discussion. Thanks.
3: Okay, well, thank you for that. And, and it clearly is inspiring to hear the, that degree of solidarity. Uh, perhaps what we can now do is explore a little bit further the, the nature of the demands that people were making and what links these demands. What do they share in the way in which they begin to raise a kind of critique of the status quo situation. So, uh, Toby, might I ask you to uh, start us off on that?
5: Sure. Um, I would say, I mean, the, the, the clearest unifying demand is was an end to the zero COVID policies, uh, an end to these extremely strict lockdowns and um, these like never ending mandatory PCR tests and uh, these other uh, aspects of the zero COVID policy that were like extremely disruptive to day-to day life. Um, I think it's uh, um, important to get clear on uh, how extreme the zero COVID policies were. Um, this gets like confusing uh, coming from the US where um, uh, uh, you know, like we, we, we associate like opposition to so-called lockdowns with uh, right wing elements here in the US. Um, it's important to understand, like the lockdowns uh, that that were imposed upon people in China were completely different to anything that was ever experienced, even even at the height of the early days of the precautions in 2020 that anyone experienced in the United States. I would say in the United States, we never uh, actually underwent anything like a real um, uh, lockdown. Um, so, uh, you know, the the just to take the example. Of the the uh, deadly fire in Urumqi that um, that set off the protest wave, um, uh, as best as we can tell, uh, the, this fire became so deadly because of how, as part of these lockdown policies, uh, blockades had been put up by authorities um, around this uh, this uh, residential building, so that uh, uh, people were unable to escape, and that, and to the point that fire services were unable to make it to the building. So people couldn't get out because the way was blockaded, and the fire trucks couldn't get in because of how tightly um, locked down uh, this building was. Um, and uh, this is, you know, uh, in uh, has been mentioned, like in Urumqi, the 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 lockdowns were exceptionally strict because in in Xinjiang all the all of the mechanisms of repression that the Chinese government has been developing, like Xinjiang and I would say Urumqi in particular, has been sort of the epicenter of where these these forms of state control have been developed in 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 the harshest possible way, right? So it's it's sort of not surprising that this uh, uh, that this is the location where this tragic fire occurred, um, uh, but. Uh, people across China where they've also experienced lockdowns, like, I, I would say that fear, seeing seeing buildings getting locked down and like exits getting locked from the outside and like fears of, of what if a fire breaks out, like this is a very clear fire hazard, that's a pretty common experience um, for uh, people uh, in a number of, of cities uh, across China. So um, uh, so these lockdowns are, are, were clearly unsafe, much harsher than anything that anyone ever experienced in the U.S. And that's these are the aspects of the zero COVID policy that uh, people um, have been demanding uh, to get lifted. There have been other demands also um, uh, expressed in the protests: uh, demands for freedom of speech, um, for uh, uh, other more political demands um, for uh, democracy and an end to dictatorship Um, in the in some of the. uh, vigils and uh, solidarity protests in the diaspora. There have also been uh, demands raised to uh, close the concentration camps in Xinjiang. These sorts of more um, uh, radical political demands, I would say, are are maybe more commonly expressed in, in diaspora, where there's like more space and safety to to talk about these sorts of of things um, than in in. In, within China, but th- there's also been some um, experimentation with some of these uh, more uh, explicitly political demands uh, in China as well. If
2: you are enjoying the Haymarket Live series, you'll also be interested in a new book from Haymarket, Border and Rule, Global Migration, Capitalism, and the Rise of Racist Nationalism by Harshawalia. Border and Rule explores a number of seemingly disparate global geographies, with shared logics of border rule that displace, immobilize, criminalize, exploit, and expel migrants and refugees. Harsha Walia demonstrates how borders divide the international working class and consolidate imperial, capitalist, ruling class, and racist nationalist rule, cogently mapping the lucrative connections between state violence, capitalism, and right-wing nationalism around the world. As Naomi Klein puts it, this is a book of unsparing truth and dazzling ambition, providing readers with desperately needed intellectual ammunition to confront the inherent violence of borders, an enormous contribution to our movements. Find Border and Rule at haymarketbooks.org. Thank you.
3: Uh, Ila, I'd like to ask you to come in on the dimension of workplace protests uh it was clear to many of us just even following mainstream media that there were some very powerful protests by workers at foxconn for instance as part of this upheaval could you sort of speak to the role of those protests and the degree to which workplace uh, conflicts and so on have figured in this movement?
0: Sure. So um, the, the lockdowns have affected different kinds of workers differently. Um, for white-collar workers uh, who have been subjected to lockdowns, they have a work-from-home arrangement that is familiar to uh, you know, lots of white-collar workers uh, around the world. Um, and that engenders all kinds of other problems. And we've already heard from Stephanie about uh, I- increasing uh, domestic violence around intensified crisis of social reproduction. And those are things that I think are uh, maybe the easiest for people outside of China to associate with somewhat that we all felt some of that pressure around, uh, you know, around child care, around elder care, et cetera. Um, there's there's at least two other categories of workers that I'd like to draw attention to. One is the kind of workers who, who need to use the space of the city in order to earn a living. So informal workers, who, street hawkers, people who are collecting uh, trash or recycling, people who are food delivery workers, um, domestic workers, sex workers, people who need to be out and about in the city when there's a lockdown or even if there's not a lockdown and if their health code turns red, that then means that they have to stay home until they can get a, a certain number of uh, of um, negative tests. And that means for people who are dependent on being out every single day in order to earn an income, they're no longer earning an income, right? So being confined to the home either by lockdown or by a red health code Uh, Immediately produces a subsistence crisis for those kinds of workers, and so that's um, so so that has obviously generated a lot of um, dissatisfaction. Then there's the the manufacturing workers and the the key technology that uh, governance technology that the state has developed is called closed loop management. which is a little bit similar to the NBA bubble that existed in the United States in twenty twenty. So you go into a workplace and essentially you're not allowed to come out until the lockdown uh, until until the the virus is under control within within that area. And in some cases, workers have been in closed loop for for several months at a time. When that happens, the only thing that goes in is 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 the, is the goods uh, to to produce food medicine uh, to a certain extent. The way that I think about the closed loop is an effort to radically demobilize labor while allowing for continual circulation of capital and commodities, um, and that just creates totally untenable contradictions. One of the problems is that it also devolves um, responsibility for the maintenance of life to the employers, right? So in the case of Foxconn, um, which is the one that's got, gotten the most attention, though it's not the only one, you have this uh, facility of 200,000 people. Um, the whole reason that this thing exists is to be able to produce iPhones as quickly as efficiently as possible while exploiting their workers to the highest degree. So three-quarters of the world's iPhones come from this one um, facility. When there's a few cases that begin to circulate in the city of Zhengzhou where this where this facility is located, all of a sudden the government a science responsibility for maintaining the lives of these workers to Foxconn and Foxconn is not at all designed uh, to do that. And so what happens is you have Foxconn trying to keep people producing and this is this is in the ramp up season for production of iPhones in anticipation of Christmas you have them ramping up uh, production, the virus is circulating within within the factory, and Foxconn is desperately trying to keep infected people away uh, from, from non-infected people. They are doing a very poor job at that. People who are getting sick uh, are not being uh, given, in some cases, they're, they're receiving zero medical attention. They are not receiving adequate food. Um, their rumors begin to circulate, and th- this is back in, in October, uh, rumors begin to circulate that a uh, number of workers have died. Uh, those are still unverified, but it certainly resonated with people's experiences of being denied access to basic life-sustaining infrastructures. And uh, this, this leads to a whole series of things. First, you have thousands of workers that, that just run for the exits. They had been locked inside the facility, and so they're, they're literally just jumping over the fence. Uh, Foxconn then tries to bring in more workers with the help of the local government, and they're recruiting military vets and telling them it's their patriotic duty to go back into Foxconn um, and and help uh, build the nation or or whatever. Um, And uh, those workers are somewhat deceived, it turns out that they're actually not going to receive the bonuses that they had been promised until March. This leads to a really spectacular riot, thousands of people, incredibly violent confrontations, with the so-called Big Whites who were the, the hazmat suit wearing um, uh, workers as well as riot police. And th- a lot of those videos were captured um, and and disseminated on the internet. And it's, it's a huge victory victory for the workers. They actually get uh, 10,000 yuan, uh, f- uh, which is um, a little less than $1,500. Foxconn says, if you, you take this 10,000 10, yuan, just leave. Um, so a lot of workers came in, were just there for a few days, rioted, and then got you know, $1,500 to <laughs> Um, so it was, it was a pretty good deal for them as well. Um, so there's been, all, there's been all kinds of re- resistance, right? And that, that's a particular form that it's taken for, for manufacturing. But I think the thing to understand, as we've already heard with respect to the, to the situation with Uyghurs, with respect um, to processes of social reproduction, um, and, and um, gender gendered forms of oppression. What the lockdowns have done is really intensified these existing forms of exploitation and social domination and really pushed them to a,
3: a breaking point. Thank you. And listening to the picture that all of you have painted, you're describing a degree of a sort of incipient feminist and queer element to the protest, including who's been leading some of the actions and obviously working class character to many of the protests, a degree of social solidarity with an oppressed people, the Uyghurs. One would like to think that in the descriptions that you've given the international left would see that this is clearly a social protest movement of the sort that we support, whether when we're in the United States or Canada or Britain or what have you. Uh, And yet the reality has been somewhat more complicated. So could you speak sort of directly to to the question, uh, should the global left, both see this upheaval as progressive, socially progressive, um, and what's holding people back from embracing that and lending solidarity? Stephanie, do you want to start us again?
4: Sure. Um, So what I've been observing is that a lot of Hong Kong people they are reluctant to support, um, many of them are, re- are kind of reluctant to support um, the ongoing protests in China, which I completely understand because when the movement erupted in Hong Kong, the Chinese government used a lot of nationalistic rhetoric to kind of, you know, um, use it as a state propaganda to incite the kind of separatist um, emotions. Um, so, which I think is a shame that um, these kinds of um, um, hostility exists in, in, in you know, the the like two movements. But I would say that you know, a lot of the people on the left uh, see Chinese people still in a very monolithic view. Um, Sometimes they just view Chinese people as equivalent to the Chinese government, or they see Chinese people as this individualist, meritocratic um, group, um, which is very uh, inaccurate. Um, So in the past uh, movements, especially, you know, the movements, uh, you know, Umbrella movement and anti-extradition, uh built amendment movement in Hong Kong a lot of activists in China actually support uh, and show you know, signs of support to you know activists in Hong Kong um, and there are like ongoing uh, solidarity kind of connection between these you know activist groups and one one of my friends Sophia Huang Xueqing uh is actually you know and other friend Wang Jianbin, um, they are in being detained and arrested by the Chinese government and Sophia Wrote uh, what she witnessed in Hong Kong in 2019, and was detained for months. And now she's, they are detained again, and they're facing criminal charges. So these stories has be, have been erased, um, actually, kind of erased by a lot of popular media or pop, uh, kind of uh, a lot of the 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 media outlets. So I so I think it's really important to highlight. The kind of ongoing, you know, solidarity uh, movements between these, two, you know, different regions, but not to see Chinese people as monolithic, like a monolithic entity, um, and to see like the more like the, the the complexity and and struggles that that are happening. For example, the Uyghur struggles um, that are happening in China. I think it's really critical.
3: Wonderful. Uh, Toby, would you like to pick up on this topic?
5: Uh, Absolutely. Um, What Stephanie was talking about is this image that's all too common in the U.S. of of China as a monolith and this sort of undifferentiated Chinese identity. Um, I think it's very dangerous and troubling that this that idea does have a grip on on many people uh, on the left uh, in the United States. Um, because it is uh, one of the main ideological pillars uh, for uh, nationalists and hawks in both the U.S. and in China. Uh, this idea of like this monolithic Chinese identity, um, which is in fact uh, opposed and maybe incompatible with uh, this, this image of a U.S. identity. Um, there's a version of that that's dominant in, among elites in the U.S. There's also a, ver- a mirror image version of that that's dominant. Among nationalist elites uh, in in China, um, and that's just this fundamental uh, ideological framework that is driving these our two countries uh, into into intensifying conflict and enabling that to get worse and worse. Um, I, I think it's important for us to understand that the best antidote to escalating nationalist conflict is a spirit of international solidarity. Uh, built from the grassroots. And the majority of people in the United States and in China, uh, and in countries beyond, uh, and certainly working people, uh, share the same problems that have the same root causes in corporate power, in economic inequality, in authoritarian nationalist leaders, in unaccountable elites, um, in a fundamentally dysfunctional uh, global neoliberal political economic system, um, and uh, the fact that we have these shared problems with common root causes—that's uh, the basis for us to 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 build a sense of international so- solidarity and make that the foundation of our our politics. And um, one of the one of the big obstacles to building that sense of international solidarity that I have run into, uh, trying to do this uh, within organize, my organizing work in the United States, is this, um, I, there's, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of obstacles. One of the obstacles that's out there is this um, image of Chinese people as sort of um, docile and obedient and part of this uh, sort of like hive mind like collective. In, in China, like that's a very dominant it, uh, image, um, and uh, uh, it has a grip on a lot of people, uh, even even uh, on the left, um, and moments in this, moments of protest and uprising are really important for breaking through uh, that mirage of, of, of thinking that, uh, you know, um, uh, you know Chinese people are docile and collectivist, and so don't rise up. Because and and the problem that, that creates for international solidarity is um, it makes it makes it seem impossible that masses of people in China could be our comrades if you imagine them as docile and and in lockstep with with, with Xi Jinping and the Chinese Communist Party. Um, and so uh, that's what for me is like very valuable of this moment of of uprising is shattering that 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 illusion Um, and actually this is a pet peeve for a lot of uh, that I have with a lot of the liberal media coverage of the protests in the US where they call it, oh, in a rare protest, uh, we see these people rising up in China. There are a lot of things about uh, this uprising that are are new and unique and that we haven't seen in decades. Um, But protest in China is not actually rare, like people protest in China all the time. It's the politicized nature of these protests and how they're they, they got nationwide. Like that is that is something that makes them special and we're paying specific attention to. Uh, but protests in China is is not actually that rare. So, sorry, that's just a um, uh, a pet peeve. So I think there is um, this concern that many people on the left have that supporting these protests are somehow going to feed into anti-China narratives. Um, and I would just like flip that on its head and say this is an opportunity to build a spirit of international solidarity. And that's what, that's our most powerful tool on the left to counter these anti-China narratives that um, nationalist elites in the United States are, are trying to um, impose upon us. Uh, there are other narratives that are, that also are, are some places on the fringes on the left, like this idea, I saw some on like social media, these claims that somehow the protests were being instigated by the CIA or something, um, uh, I just think that's nuts. I'm not, I'm not going to, I, I want to dismiss that very quickly. Um, but uh, uh, yeah, those are some of the obstacles I see to uh, left solidarity,
3: yeah. OK, thank you. Uh, Ryan. could you speak uh, to the importance of international solidarity from the standpoint of the work that you have been doing? Uh, In solidarity with the struggle of the Uyghur people against the oppression that they experience from the Chinese state? I think you're still muted.
1: I'd be happy to, um, but I think it's best if I could back it up with the previous question that you posed for both um, Stephanie and uh, Toby. you know, it's been very frustrating for me over the past few years to see this pro- the di- indifference from the progressive moments towards the plight of the Uyghurs, because it's an atrocity that is happening in broad light. It's one of the most well-documented atrocities uh, that we have borne witness to but at the same time if you look at the skill and gravity of the crisis we're talking about people being locked up in re-education camps and these are the language of the chinese government Uh, most materials of these like leaked documents where the government's wording couldn't be more clear in terms of expressing this intent to destroy um, the collective existence and dignity of the Uyghur people. Um, but the way I saw this disconnect and this indifference that led to this prolonged agony of the Uyghur people is that you know, China has been this very fascinating country for such a long time, for many it has this vast history, um, and a lot of people actually built their lives and career over this, you know, studying about China, studying about Chinese civilization and all these sort of things. But at the backdrop of everything that's happening, we also saw, um, you know, uh, the U.S. government's invasion in Iraq um, and other human rights abuses that committed by the U.S. government. We can always criticize US government for what it has done in other parts of the world, but that doesn't mean that we should be shying away from criticizing the Chinese government for what it has what is continues to do to the Uyghurs. Um and, and the secondly, China really weaponized this whole like, oh, he criticized the Chinese government. There is some sort of correlation between criticizing government versus this anti-Asian or anti-Chinese sentiment that we're seeing in the West. These are two, you know, we, we cannot allow the government to weaponize this because if we do so, then the Uyghurs, I, I can imagine uh, what is the fate of the Uyghurs. We, I don't think that, you know, our survival became the most important issue at this point. And, and secondly, I think China has so powerfully used this term, like, you know, that you know it must be loyal to it. It's a political system. It's different than the best. Everybody should respect it. We can respect China's political governance if it is serving the interests of the population. But there are times we wouldn't when it is committing genocide and crimes against humanity. So I've seen like so much of this, it's it, it's just like unfathomable situation of just allowing this atrocity to continue when I've seen so much solidarity from uh, the left on other issues that often even politicize, whether it's uh, Palestinian issues or... Um, You know, like when the U.S. government position is vastly different than than Europe. So, you know, if we're going to be boldly speaking against atrocity of any form, then shouldn't the Uyghur issue and Uyghurs deserve just as the same kind of solidarity and compassion from the people who claims to be the champion of human rights? So why solidarity is so important? I took my advocacy a le- slightly different thing. For example, like when I, a, a year ago, when I saw like a, a, the new members of Congress uh, came into power, like I tried to bring in members of Congress who are of Asian descent, because it's so important for them to speak up because the Chinese government has, again, as I said, has been using this crisis um, in a way to stop, Scrutiny over its atrocities. Um, and I worked, you know, I reached out to the office of uh, Representative Young Kim, and who has done a remarkable job in terms of preserving Uyghur culture and so forth. And I also introduced the Uyghur issue at institutions like Harvard, because the Chinese government has been using this Harvard data to say that, look, everybody. Actually, according to Harvard's uh, survey, uh, the Chinese Communist Party is favored by 70% or something. So if that is the case, then, you know, institutions, elite institutions such as Harvard should speak up. And then there was a wonderful piece in Cornell, actually, by a a Han scholar who said, "Are the Chinese, the whites of the West? and that piece very well written really sparked so much conversation to the point that even global times ended up writing an op-ed trying to rebuke the piece to say no those are two different issues but it is the same issue we have um I think the, the situation that we're witnessing right now is that in China, especially in, in the Uyghur region, is some form of apartheid, where, like, you know, Han citizen would get different kinds of treatment than Uyghurs. Like, every time somebody passes through a security, they would be flagged, and they're always worried, would they be the next victim to be sent to the camps? Like, when you're living in that constant agony of life and these are the are, i'm speaking of people who are outside of the camp they're not even inside of the camp so you can only imagine how much control the state exert over people in the camps so this is why i think solidarity is important and i i i tried not I mean there are a lot of like um another issue that we could cause somehow uh people who have spoken so critically are more on the right But that doesn't mean that, you know, we have people like Senator Koons of Delaware, Menendez. So many senators did speak up, um, except they were not as loud. Um, So that's why I think I chose a very different kinds of advocacy. And in one of the letters that I um, petitioned, and now it got covered in The Guardian, one of the biggest signatories was, Asian American uh, Association and once we were able to get them and it kind of like trickled down to Chinese American or Chinese student association. so we start to see this rippling effect of solidarity but to get there it took a lot of effort because uh, I just heard recently from one of the Oxford student organization that they have uh been trying to organize a Uyghur event, but they're always worried that like one of their students, uh, who serves on the board, is Chinese, so they, they don't want to get him into trouble. That is very disheartening to me. Here in institutions like Oxford, Yale, or Harvard, we want to organize an event where like the Children of political elites in China study can carry the message that Oxford, Harvard and Yale, these institutions do care about the plight of the Uyghurs, yet we're afraid. And, you know, the the Chinese government even can silence speech in a free world should really um, terrify us all. Uh, uh, With that, I think it's incredibly important when I saw... There was a vigil at Oxford, and people who spoke at those vigil are students themselves. Uh, Some of them were careful uh, to mask, not to reveal their identity. But even that, I think it already sends a very strong message to the Chinese government that people are now... um, awaken to this new reality where they realize that if the Chinese students or Chinese people don't speak up, that would become ultimately a national sin.
4: Thank
3: you. Uh, We're going to move into some of the questions that have been posed in the chat in a few minutes, but before we we do, Eli, uh, I wonder if you could offer a few reflections on what you see as the prospects for this wave of of struggle. From what you've described, it's clearly had some victories. Uh, Do you think that we're looking at a sort of revival of popular protest and popular resistance in China? Is this perhaps a, a kind of inflection point?
0: Yeah, so there's the question of the the large scale nationwide protests um, that we saw in November, that is over and is unlikely to be revived anytime soon. Uh, the repressive capacity of the state is just overwhelming, and they clearly uh, have made a decision to to repress. So there, and it is, it's already been rolled out. There's people who've been sent to jail. I think we do need to be in solidarity with the folks who uh, are in jail, and we need to continue to demand uh, their release. So, so that particular form, I think, is is unlikely um, to persist. But as we've already heard from a couple of speakers, there is a lot of protest that happens in China all the time. Um, if And in fact, there's there's a resource that I recommend checking out called the China Descent Monitor. Um, and one of the things that they showed is that there was a big uptick in protest actually even before everything that happened in November. So going back to September, you can begin to see the number of protests against lockdowns beginning to rise. They're small and isolated, but they're happening. And then you have the big the, the big sort of conflagration that happens in November um so i think we'll continue to see all kinds of protests you know zero covid is over i think dramatically and somewhat catastrophically so the, the state has not invested in the healthcare infrastructure that's going to be necessary to uh, to save lots of lives so sh- truly you know we've already seen protests by um by medical students who've been forced um uh, to do extra work in hospitals for, for less pay and it's, it's non-voluntary. Um, and I think those kinds of things will will continue. In terms of thinking about the more politicized aspects, because Toby, uh, I, I agree with what Toby said, the thing that is unique about these protests is not that there are protests in China, but it's the politicization and it's the specific targeting of policies from the central government. So, so the, in terms of thinking about how that develops, one of the things that I think is really important and may be important for viewers is to think specifically about the diaspora and the role that overseas Chinese people are playing. Um, I, as a professor, I frequently encounter Chinese students and I've just been blown away by the huge leap that has happened in political consciousness uh, among Chinese students uh, just in the past few months um, and in the past, really in the past year. Um, In terms of thinking about, to reference your your earlier question about uh, international left solidarity, um, this is a a very concrete place where I think um, we can engage because the politics behind this movement are still... Amorphous, right? And you can even see this in the protests themselves, where there was all kinds of different slogans, right? So you do have people singing the international, which was great and exciting for me, um, but you also have people singing the national anthem. You have people chanting "Give me liberty or give me death." Um, you know, it's a whole kind of range of of, pol- uh, of political orientations. It's very difficult. To articulate those within China right now, for all sorts of reasons, I'm sure that people are doing it in in sort of in safe and and offline uh, spaces to some extent. But there's just a lot more space for the diaspora to do that. Um, and so I think one of the roles. Um, that those of us um, outside of the country can play is to help facilitate those kinds of conversations and say, what kind of politics, you know, what are the real grievances here, right? And what kind of politics can adequately respond um, to those kinds of grievances? So I do think that in terms of thinking about the prospects, that's going to be a really important um, point moving forward.
3: Thank you. I'm going to the chat now. And Eli, I'm going to come back to you shortly because I know you don't have a lot more time with us because of other commitments uh but toby i did want to get you to follow up on something you were discussing earlier uh, one person in the chat is really sort of asking what the implications of the relaxation of the COVID lockdown policy will be and even one of the questioners is worried that it's reckless uh, from a public health standpoint, and and so on. So I wonder if you could start by speaking to those two issues.
5: Uh, yeah, it seems that uh, the Chinese government has done an abrupt 180 in terms of its COVID policies. So it's gone from these very strict and seemingly endless uh, lockdowns um, uh, and the narratives to. The narratives about how dangerous COVID is that they use to to justify those lockdowns. They've done a 180 to lift those policies, but also to start, um, in, in, at least in some places, like spreading narratives that downplay the severity of COVID. And again, this is to justify why um, all of a sudden these these uh, n- now like the, the, the Chinese government is is like uh, I, I think like it it. it It may vary uh, between different parts of the country, but in in some cases, just like um, uh, uh, throwing all caution to the wind. And um, uh, it seems to be difficult to get reliable information, reliable numbers, but there are indications that um, uh, uh, COVID is now spreading um, um, out of control. And I am very concerned um, about... uh, uh how like how much harm this is going to uh translate into for the the people um of china um i am a bit shocked that this is the course that the government is is taking like it has been clear for some time that the authorities in china uh had been relying exclusively basically on these zero covid tactics and not investing in um, building up uh, healthcare infrastructure and in public, not building up public health infrastructure, um, not even uh, taking serious efforts to get vaccination numbers up, uh, in, in particular uh, amongst uh, elderly people um, in China who are most at risk. Um, and uh, uh, Yeah, one might have imagined that they would look at the zero COVID protests like okay we need to wind down the zero COVID policy Um, let's take some time to to, um, put in place some of these other public health measures um, that will allow us to sort of roll back the zero COVID policies but um, instead they did this very abrupt 180 um, that uh, yeah I
3: find like very concerning. There's a question that's come in for us, uh, and Stephanie, I'd be curious to hear your reflections or observations on this. But someone has, is asking us, I have heard that the protests included slogans in solidarity with the Iranian protests. Can you say more about that? And uh, please do share with us uh, your thoughts on that.
4: Yeah, I think, uh, so previously, before the, the kind of mass protests in China, there are a lot of discussion, in fact, um, or articles written about the Iranian protests. Um, I think one of the major things that spark um, people's interest is how how the Iranian protests, obviously it's, it's about gender, but it's, Oh, it's or more, it's more about um, anti-oppressive government. So I think that kind of um, feminists really utilize this opportunity to connect what we are experiencing in China with that of the struggles of you know, women's struggles in Iran. Um, so I see a lot of critical discussions of the Iranian protests. So it's not a surprise for me to, to hear the chanting of women life freedom um, in these kind of protests. So it is obviously about women, but it's also about how people took up the streets to fight against government oppression. So I think those two aspects really come, come together. Um, and yeah I, and I do hope um, these kind of connections were made more clear to a lot of protesters who are you know chanting a lot of misogyni- misogynistic uh, remarks. Um, in those protests, so so we have um, ongoing feminist discussions of how to use kind of anti-misogynistic remarks to to to, um, to rally in those um, protests. So that is kind of the in, some of the internal tensions that I've witnessed. Um, yeah. So. Mm-hmm. Thank you,
3: um, Ryan. I'm going to have one for you in a moment, but I need to get this to Eli before we lose him uh, because Eli, it's a direct follow up to your earlier discussion, uh, particularly around Foxconn. The uh, question in the chat is, what does the workers resistance to closed loop mean for the future of a Chinese labor movement?
0: Um, thanks, it's a great question. I don't know the answer. Um, the, one thing that the resistance to closed loop really under, underlines is the position of migrant workers. So in China, when you leave your place of household registration and you go to the cities to find jobs, which about 300 million people have done, uh, you forsake guaranteed access uh, to healthcare. And um, that's what what this shows is that the Chinese state has always maintained the capacity to kind of tell people where they can live and when. And the closed loop is really just a kind of an intensification of that, right? It's saying you can only stay within the the bounds of these factory. Um, You know, I was thinking about something when, when Toby was talking about building out national healthcare infrastructure. China has an incredibly decentralized and fractured healthcare system, right? And so when you leave your place of household registration, you go somewhere else, that means you're not guaranteed access. To healthcare in that place, And you know, in in the course of a pandemic, it really highlights the shortcomings of that because again, you have 300 million people who are in that position. Um, and so, uh, I, I I I mean, at the, the sort of if we're going to place our aspirations as high as possible, uh, what what I what I'd like to see come out of this is demands around linking those labor rights to rights to social reproduction in whatever place you happen to be living, right? Because currently China has this tension of having a national labor market, but social reproduction processes are organized uh, at the level of the city. And so, kind of aligning the labor market—you know, where you can sell your labor and where you can uh, enjoy that social reproduction—is something that I think is really critical. And I hope that that continues. Um, more concretely, in terms of what's happening in, in in the workplace, you know, if those more politicized demands don't emerge out of this. Um, We have seen, it feels like a reduction in the number of labor conflicts that have happened um, over the last few years. It's very hard to get reliable numbers. This may just be that internet censorship has gotten better. Um, But for a while in the 2000s and, and early to mid 2010s, every few months, there was one of these big events where, you know, you had thousands of workers on strike or, or rioting or something like that. And it felt like there was um, a diminishment of that. certainly under conditions of COVID. That's not, that's not really surprising. Um, But uh, Xi Jinping uh, has, um, Famously centralized a lot of power, has really enhanced the repressive capacity of the state, has eliminated uh, all external sources of support from um, from labor NGOs and from universities that had played a key role in supporting labor struggles. Those have basically all um, disappeared. So, um, you know, this may, this could potentially herald uh, the beginning of of more of that of a return to what we saw happening uh, in the 2010s. Um, one one thing that is very different right now, and I think is also a structural factor that's underlying all of these protests, is the dramatically slowing economy. Um, and this is something that the Chinese state has not had to deal with for the past 30 years, when growth has been averaging, you know, eight uh, percent or what have you for for a very long time. Growth is slowing. That has been, of course, accelerated by zero COVID. Um, and for for both. Uh, rural uh, rural to urban migrant workers this is a problem but also uh, increasingly for um, for middle class urban youth for university students they are extremely concerned about their future prospects um, and unemployment rates for for college graduates uh, are quite high and so I mean this was I think one of kind of part of what's maybe Stephanie was suggesting around this fear and anxiety. There's a real fear and anxiety about social, about downward social mobility in the future and whether people, you know, will be able to have access to decent jobs. So anyway, that's, that's not really an answer. You know, we can't look into the crystal ball and know how, how things are going to develop precisely, but those are some of the dynamics um, that I see playing out in the years to come. Um, and I do just want to apologize to everybody that I'm going to have to leave a few minutes early.
3: No worries, and, and thank you, Eli. And uh, I'll be thanking you in your absence at the uh, end of our discussion. Uh, Ryan, we've got uh, two different questions that I think really speak to some of the issues that you were raising earlier. So let me ask you about both sides of it. One of the questionnaires wants really to understand a little bit more about Islamophobia in China uh, and the way in which it plays out domestically. The other questioner really asked something very direct about solidarity prospects. They ask us, how can the precedent of Han Uyghur solidarity be built upon? So really both sides of, of that picture, if you could.
1: Yeah, thank you. Um so the way the way this Islamophobia comes into context when um concerning the Uyghurs is that, you know, for years Uyghurs were very much exoticized in in China, you know. So that's a, so one way to put it. So um and it. In that way, what happens is that when the state exorcises you as this community who can sing and dance, like people get to know you through that only lens, uh, it reduces your collective talent and wisdom, culture, history, tradition, and everything that comes with this. So oftentimes um growing up, like I would face questions like, oh, can you dance for us? Like, can you, can you move your uh, neck for us? Like, that's the move that you guys are known for. And I was very much perplexed and, and almost uh, insulted by that kind of like asking me to do something to show who I am. Like, you can, you know, I'm more than happy to introduce my beautiful, glorious culture to you through intellectual discussions or introducing you to my language and culture, but not just like, you know, showcasing whether I could dance or sing to prove that I'm Uyghur. So that's how like that kind of discrimination happened. And then as it evolved, I think we had, Sean Roberts did a wonderful book that um, People's War on China, how like the, the direct link between uh the war on terror and its uh, indirect impact on the Uyghurs, you know, when the world was um, grappling with, um, whether it's the terrorist attacks or concerns and everything, all Muslims, um, doesn't matter whether you're in, um, in Turkey or in the U.S. and as well as in China, I think Many states, certain governments, use that as an opportune moment for them to crack down on their ethnic population. So China very quickly joined uh, the bandwagon to say that I have Muslims in my backyard that needs to be contained uh, and um, de-radicalized. That this is, and, and I think when the state uses its uh, own resources and instruments to portray you as this backwarded community. You can only imagine that citizens would follow um, that slogan very quickly. And that kind of othering quickly turned into more of Islamophobia. And this is why I think I reject to portray Uyghurs as just Muslims. And in some ways maybe corporate media needs to do much more than oh look at the Uyghur Muslims in China. And I, I had a very much discussions, even like institutions like Human Rights Watch who uses Uyghur Muslims as if the Uyghur community, that's the only thing they do, like they pray, Um, but there's so much more to the Uyghur people. You know, I think first and foremost, we need to respect people's uh, communities, peoplehood, uh, their nationhood, their existence, who they are, and then we can... Go down to to other categories. Talk about oh, because of their religion, this is a religious persecution, or this ethno-national persecution. There's so much more, but then the headline oh, always the Uighur Muslims, and I think that doesn't help. Um, in the in one of the plane uh, crash, I think it was a Malaysia plane crash happened. Um, a lot of people died, but in the, in that uh, like a lot of Chinese tourists too. And one of the passengers was Uyghurs. When the Chinese media was reporting on that, the first thing, like, oh, there's an Uyghur, could be a terrorist. That is how the state media portrayed that incident. So you can only imagine when the state broadcasts Uyghurs as terrorists using their own machinery, the citizens would be alarmed with you, and that's how they are introduced to you as a community. And I think um, that is incredibly dangerous, and that led to what, what we know now. And in terms of Han Uyghur solidarity, is it possible, and how we're going to see it? I actually um, very. In the past few days, I asked very simple questions, Like I, I and I wrote in Chinese, and I asked, like, dear friends, could you please explain to me, are you, as a Han person, endorse the government's policy in Xinjiang after learning about what's happening? And it received over close to 400 comments. The overwhelming vast majority denounced the Chinese government's re-education policies. And they said, "I don't want to be part of this system," and I think that gave me a lot of hope. I, I think Stephanie had a really important comment that I've seen it also within the Uyghur diaspora community. Given that over the years of silence of the the Han majority, and when the, I think similar conversation also took place among the Uyghurs. Like, is this a real genuine solidarity towards us? Or is this about just COVID because it affects them? Oh, like, you know, fire is something that, you know, we could all think of. That's something we could conceive. It could happen to them. But concentration camps or re-education camps wouldn't necessarily happen to the Han majority who is seen as this upper class versus you are the... So, I mean, should we celebrate this and call it solidarity? Is this a solidarity? How should we even define it? Or is it like a solidarity of convenience or a moment? And I think these are good discussions to have, and I'm glad that Uyghur community is asking. But I took the position that I don't think we can even afford to question it. That was my immediate response. But I, as I interrogate this matter more, I'm like, we should question it. I think it is important we understand and get to the bottom of it so that we can really understand what is the root cause. How do we form a real solidarity between the Han and, Uyghur, Han and Uyghurs? Do they? Continue to espouse the state's values of seeing Uyghurs through the lens of like these are backwarded people that need to be re educated, or you know, at the end of the day, we're all people. If the government can treat its most vulnerable population, it would be a matter of time before it comes to me, uh, Professor. uh, I think, um. I'm forgetting his, uh, I'm going to mispronounce his last name, so I want to make sure. In The Atlantic, um, he wrote this really good piece about sometimes it's either a, uh, Professor Jeff Vassarstone uh, wrote a piece, and I think it was a really good piece in terms of explaining. Sometimes it takes a celebrity to really alarm what's happening. We've seen in the case of like Peng Shuai, when a star tennis player disappeared, like everybody, international community, everybody. Sometimes it just takes a common man for people to really realize that, you know, this could happen to them too. So I'm hoping that this is a conversation that starts now, But, you know, we can't also be too patient at this point. Like Uyghur community, this is like seven years into this crisis. And my family, my own brother is suffering and so is my parents. And during the COVID lockdown in the past few years, few months, I've seen not only um, the women who, you know, many people who are, one of, in a vulnerable situation uh, potentially being abused, but I also saw this very spike in mental health problems within the Uyghur community too. Uh, I have known cases of people committing suicide and I couldn't disclose their names uh, out of concern for their family members, but these are real things that have happened. and. And I think this is why it's really important that solidarity not only comes from the Han people, but also from the universities to really provide an opportunity for collective discussions between uh, Uyghur students and Han students. And dare I say, there would be very few Uyghur students in this university, over the past few Uyghurs can't even get a passport, to leave China and study. Uh, this is why I think... I truly believe that universities need to play a more role, and I think we should encourage the Chinese government that, you know, just as Han students can study and excel and thrive in American campuses, Uyghur students also belong to these campuses as well. Um, Uyghur students uh, they don't deserve to be in the concentration. They don't need to be reeducated re educated in these camps. Um, they should come to all these institutions where we're welcoming Chinese students. So I hope without these platforms and opportunities, I don't know how this solidarity is going to sustain for a long time.
3: Thank you. We're we're getting into our last Few minutes in the discussion period, and uh, so Stephanie and Toby, I'm really going to ask you a, a fairly general question and let you take it uh, wherever you want. Which is, given this really to me hugely informative discussion, I mean I, I found it illuminating to listen to all of you. What are the key points that you would like? participants in our session today to take away, to be thinking about or acting on. Stephanie, let me start with you.
4: Okay, thank you for this question. Um, before responding to David, I, I think I wanna you know comment on what uh, Ryan has just said about Han-Uyghur um, solidarity. I think one of the most critical issues about censorship um, the you know cultural reduction and the otherization is happening in China partly because the state uses the state propaganda to portray the Uyghurs as you know a specific group of people, but then at the same time it erases the kind of you know sufferings that you know atrocities that Uyghur people are experiencing in China. So a lot of Chinese people actually have no idea of what is happening. So I think. Having the conversation and also, you know, educating people of, of what is happening in, in in Xinjiang is really important. But that also poses a lot of risk to, you know, activists who are, you know, spreading this kind of information. So I think what Elias has just said, you know, Chinese diaspora, you know, di- Asian diaspora, we can do more in spreading this, you know, conversation and knowledge so that, you know, this kind of Uyghur enhanced solidarity is not just ephemeral, right? It's not just ephemeral in, during this protest, but we should really continue this discussion of, you know, how people are in, in different places, they suffer from state oppression. So, so Uyghur is one population, and I would suggest, you know, um, women and LGBT queer people in general, they are also, you know, having their own difficulties. Um, so I think one of the message that I want the participants to go home and take you know take away is to see how COVID really has this differentiated impact on you know people like on people people's lives in China. So for example, what sparked this you know mass protests? Is a collective trauma, and also the kind of resonating empathy with the 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 fire, the block fire in Wuhan, and also the connection with you know ordinary Chinese people's lives, and to see how COVID actually has different impacts especially impacted those minority people, uh, people who are on the marginal uh, marginalized position. For example, the workers, the migrants, the women in heterosexual families and queer people. Um, so I think this has to be, you know, uh, discussed more so that we know it's not just about, um, you know, so we can see the complexity about the situation. Yeah. And I'm really thankful for this conversation. Thank you.
3: Wonderful, thank you. Uh, And Toby, really the the, the same question over to you. Um, I think uh,
5: above all, um, I hope people can get a sense that uh, uh, this wave of protests in China was the expression of um, these splits and, and contradictions in Chinese society that have been building for years now um and it's important to understand this and to get away from this um dominant image of like china is this undifferentiated monolith which i, I mentioned before is like all too common um and can take work to sort of uh critique cropping work through um uh, we, we've talked about uh a bunch of different uh contradictions in chinese society that that sort of express themselves in this protest through the exploitation of workers uh, particularly the 300 million migrant workers in in China. Um, there's the loss of uh, upward mobility and unemployment for young people, particularly for um, I think particularly important here is uh, for uh, college educated uh, young people who did like everything right and and graduate from college and then find that the that they don't have the upward mobility um, that society has promised them. this is a very ex- this um can be uh, a very powerful source of anti-establishment politics, if we've seen around the world, including in the US. Um uh growing uh discontent with uh with the intensifying authoritarianism in China, uh crisis of social reproduction, and then uh of course like the nationalist uh sort of colonial repression um of, of Uyghurs and this moment where um uh we do see this opening uh you know uh it, it, it's complicated, but there is an opening here uh, for um, increased solidarity between Han Chinese and 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 Uyghurs. Like in this moment, um, and I think yeah, uh, the second point, uh, just in terms of practice, is the importance of solidarity. Um, solidarity between people in the U.S., people in China, solidarity between Han Chinese and and Uyghurs. Um, Uh, And, you know, we've touched on other points as well, solidarity between uh, Mainland Han Chinese and people in in Hong Kong. Um, There are opportunities here, but also um, uh, uh, difficulties. But I think this is an important moment to um, build that kind of solidarity uh, that uh, we're going to need for our shared liberation.
3: Terrific. Thank you. Let me begin by once again thanking our hosts, Haymarket Books. They do an amazing job as a publisher in keeping radical critical voices out there and available, but also in sponsoring the annual socialism conference in providing venues like this in collaboration with Spectre Journal. And we owe them a a, a big uh, shout out tonight. I want to thank are for just really, for me, fascinating and informative commentators. Stephanie Wang, thank you. Ryan Asat, thank you. Tobita Chow, thank you. And Eli Friedman, who had to leave us a few minutes early. Thank you very much. On behalf of Spectre Journal, I want to say that we're proud to host events like this because we're not going to build a mass democratic participatory left internationally unless we move beyond simple slogans that refuse to engage with the real social dynamics and complexities of struggle in the world today. Uh, If we're gonna build global solidarity, We need to understand where oppression exists and where struggles against it are arising. For all of us at Spectre, socialism is nothing if it is not about human emancipation. And I think you could hear that message in all kinds of different ways coming from our speakers tonight. For those who would like to know more about the journal, please go to specterjournal.com. You'll see the opportunity to subscribe and to donate. And we do try on a regular basis to sponsor forums like this on some of the really key social justice and global justice questions of our time. And we consider all the aspects of the recent struggles in China that we've been talking about to be central to any movement for global justice. So once again, a big shout out to all of our speakers. I can't thank you enough. And to Haymarket Books on behalf of Spectre Journal, uh, I'm David McNally, one of the editors. We look forward to seeing you again in the next conversation that we sponsor. Good night, solidarity. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to
2: the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.